Welcome to the Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Lori Forner, a physiotherapist working in pelvic health, as well as a new student researcher on the fun, long road to a PhD, where we will be looking at pelvic floor problems and exercise. I'm here to bring you information from leading professionals on all aspects surrounding pelvic health for any gender and any age, from the vast range of pelvic floor problems to exercise and sport. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Up to 40% of women may experience low sexual desire at some point in their life. Any women of any age can experience it, and symptoms can be things like reduced interest in sex, no sexual thoughts, avoiding sex, things that used to turn you on are no longer working, you're not having as much pleasure, which is where the hashtag debunking desire has come into play. The goal of this campaign is to share evidence-based information about low sexual desire in women to create and amplify lasting dialogues with women, their partners, their healthcare providers, and the media. A professor, researcher, and psychologist that I have been obsessed with in the academic world, which we'll get into in a minute, is Dr. Lori Brado, and she's joining me on the podcast today to talk about this campaign, to talk about low sexual desire, and of course, in this podcast episode, we get into some of her research that deals with mindfulness as ways to help women who are having pain with sex, which obviously can influence sexual desire. So Dr. Laurie Brado is a professor in the University of British Columbia Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and a registered psychologist. She's the executive director of the Women's Health Research Institute at BC Women's Hospital. She holds a Canada Research Chair in Women's Sexual Health. She's the director of the UBC Sexual Health Laboratory, where research primarily focuses on advancing the science of psychological and mindfulness-based interventions for women's sexual health. She's an associate editor for the Archives of Sexual Behavior, has over 150 peer-reviewed publications, is passionate about knowledge translation, and as such is frequently featured in the media on sexual health topics. Her book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire, is a knowledge translation of her research over the past 15 years demonstrating the benefits of mindfulness for women's sexual concerns and genital pain. I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did. All the links for Debunking Desire for her book and for some more information will be in the show notes, so don't forget to check those out. I would absolutely love to hear how you got into everything that you are studying because you've been doing this for a little while now. A little while, yeah. So it's it's quite ironic because I actually grew up in a fairly strict Italian Catholic um household where not only did we not talk about sex, we actually were surrounded um, and and bathed in messages that were quite sex negative um, and so never allowed to ask questions about sexuality and lots of um, harmful views around you know the negative outcomes of talking about sex and that sort of thing. So it's it is very ironic. But I did always know that I wanted to pursue a research-related career, um, and I was also interested in psychology, um, the psychology of um, 
of human suffering, so depression mostly and anxiety. And it, so that was that's what steered me towards my choice in university and university coursework. And um, I started volunteering in a lab and pretty much the only lab who was willing to take an 18 year old um, as a volunteer was and I had no idea at the time. I just started knocking on doors in the psychology building, but it was the lab of a professor who studied animal models of sexual dysfunction. So my role was to um, expose the rats to different stressors or to administer them medications and then study the effects on sexuality. And so I did that for six years. So my entire undergrad, two years of my master's, and then the last year of my master's degree was the year Viagra was approved in Canada, 1999. And it was also the year of a big, um, fairly high profile research study um, of many, many thousand um, Americans asking them about how frequent their sexual, they have sexual concerns. And it found that 43% of women had um, sexual issues that were long lasting. So long lasting, low desire, difficulties with orgasm, vaginal pain, et cetera. Um, and so, of course, my immediate thought was, wow, those numbers are so high, but wait, we've got this incredible medication for men. Surely there's something comparable for women. Um, and so, of course, I turned to the literature and it, it was a very quick literature search because not only were there no um, pharmaceutical or medication approved products for women's sexual problems, the literature even on non-pharmaceutical approaches was quite meager. So I then switched, made a switch, took a very sharp right turn, um, and it did coincide with the start of my PhD degree. So I left the rat lab behind um, and began to study women's sexual health. And from there, um, it was mostly my own clinical interests that drove the questions that I asked because I was in a clinical program and then actually began talking to real women with real issues. So that, of course, directly informed the subsequent uh, research questions that I asked. So were you working as a psychologist and dealing with sexual difficulties and problems? Yeah. So I was um, in training to be a registered psychologist. So I wasn't a, a psychologist at the time, but definitely in training. But as part of my training, it involves um, getting exposure to clinical issues and learning how to do a proper assessment, learning about um, what evidence-based treatments were. And as I mentioned, there were very, very few for sexual health issues. But I, I was learning about the um, effective ones for depression and anxiety and other mental health issues. And then just uh, took those and applied them to women with sexual concerns. Um, and, uh, and then fast forward a few years, um, I did part of my training at the University of Washington in Seattle. And that was where I learned about mindfulness um, and uh, pretty much have been a devotee <laughs> of mindfulness ever since. And, and so a lot of my research has focused on the utility of mindfulness for women with sexual health difficulties and, and genital pain. Which I'm excited to get into in a little bit because here in yep. Australia, we've got Peter O'Sullivan and his yes, work in persistent pain and CBT yeah. and, um, yeah. and Ronnie Lennox Thompson, who's in New yeah. Zealand. And so as a physio, you know, even before getting into pelvic pain, just working with pain, we've used a lot yeah. of these tools, but using them the way that you're using them 
Oh, I'm so excited to talk about. And you know what I tried to do right before we recorded is I looked up your latest research paper where you were first yeah. author from this year. Yeah. And I'm like, I'll just quickly read this beforehand. And it was on provoked <laughs> vestibulodynia. And I'm like, holy, okay, I won't finish this before I talk yeah. to her. But oh, it just it's on my list. I'll do it probably as soon as we hang up because it looks Aww. so amazing. And the focus of the episode today is not necessarily to go into provoked mm-hmm. vestibulodynia and pain and mm-hmm. everything else I would still love to cover because I wanted mm-hmm. to focus on um, sexual desire because you've got this yeah. big campaign that you are yeah. doing now. So what when you talk about sexual desire, what are you talking about? What is it? So women usually themselves describe it as I've lost interest in sex. That's usually what they say when they show up, you know, they knock on your door, or they phone you. I've lost interest in sex. I'm not motivated to engage in sex anymore. Um, it doesn't feel the same way as it used to. I go through the motions. Um, if I never had to have sex again, I would be fine with it. But I continue to have sex for the sake of my relationship. So there's different ways that women describe it. But essentially... Um, lack of desire, low desire is really a motivational state. So it's a lack of interest, lack of motivation to engage in some kind of sexual activity. And it's really common among the different sexual concerns in women. It's the most common. And it doesn't matter what country we do the study in. It doesn't matter what age group we do the study in. Um, it, that It's the most common. And I would probably argue one of the most distressing of the sexual difficulties in part because we live in a world where media messages suggest that, you know, everyone is in the mood for sex all the time and no one plans sex and everyone wants it. And if you don't, there's something really wrong with you. So women are kind of doubly um, negatively impacted because their, their, their comparison standard is this totally false media standard that they um, absolutely do not um, live up to. And because the data, the research data tell us that most women actually don't talk to a healthcare provider to get the facts checked out, um, it means that that's really their main source of information is is media messages about about desire. And it's it's very, very harmful. Does the porn industry have anything to do with that as well? Yeah, you know, my views on porn, so I think if we had fantastic sex education in our school system. So our young, our kids and teenagers were learning accurate information about sex and bodies and the enormous range in totally normal anatomy, especially female anatomy, then porn wouldn't be so harmful. But for so many young people, porn really is their source of sex education, right? So they see artificial bodies, they don't see conversations about consent. They never see women in pain. Mm-hmm. They never see people put on condoms. So if if that is their only source, then yes, it is harmful. So what, I'm totally off topic, but how do you change what's like, what would you change that you would put in the schools that's not in the schools? Like my kids are nine and 11 and they haven't even, yeah. I don't think they've <laughs> talked about it yet. They know a lot more than most other kids because of the work that I do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how do you... Like, yeah. Is it just they teach body parts and anatomy and then that's it? And they say that two people can do this to make a baby. And is that about all the right. sex ed they get? 
Right. So, you know, it, it's not that these fantastic sex ed programs don't exist. They do exist. So in Canada, um, we have an amazing organization called the Sex Information and Education Council of Canada, CCAN. And they spent two years um, with quite a broad stakeholder group of experts um, developing a state-of-the-art, unbelievable sex education program that ranged from K to 12, kindergarten to grade 12 which is our system in Canada. Um, the problem is, is in, is in the implementation, right? Mm -hmm. So the resources are there, the modules, the, you know, handouts, how to teach it is, has been, is, has been developed. Um, but then it's up to each individual school district if they want to implement this or not. And that's really, I think, where some of the advocacy has to focus on because the data tell us that kids who don't receive good sex education, not only do they grow up with myths and misunderstanding about sexuality, they're actually less likely to report a sexual abuse if it's happening. Mm. They're more likely to grow up with shame around sexuality so that if something happens as an adult, they're less likely to report it. Um, and they carry many sex-related myths into their adult relationships. So there's an actual real harm in not implementing sex education in the schools. And what I often hear... Uh, on the other side is a concern about, well, if we teach kids about sex, they're going to start having it. Um, and there's no data that support that whatsoever in the same way that in Canada, when condom machines were placed in schools, I was going to say schools, that, I remember that. Unintended pregnancy rates actually went down, mm. not up, because it conveyed the message of consent and communication and all those things. So yeah, I think uh, um, a lot of the fears are really not based on anything scientific. Yeah, well, hopefully that will change over time. Yeah. Um, so if we come back to sexual desire. Is there like a certain threshold that you decide or that somebody decides, like who decides that what they're feeling is abnormal? Is it if you don't have sex once a month or you don't want to have sex once a month or ever or once a week? Like, is there a more specific definition or... Yeah, so we, we do have different um, frameworks for classifying what is a, a you know, a clinical diagnosis. Um, and I was actually on the committee for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, mm -hmm. DSM-5. And it's um, primarily a classification of psychiatric issues. Um, although many medical health professionals, I'm in obstetrics and gynecology, and my gynecology colleagues often use the DSM-5. So the, the actual diagnosis is, uh, is, a, is called sexual interest arousal disorder, and it lays out the criteria pretty clearly. So, you know, a woman has to have the symptoms for at least six months or more. There needs to be clinically significant distress or bother. It needs to interfere in her life in a significant way. It needs to be present on most encounters. Um, and then the criteria are laid out. So there's six different criteria and um, a woman has to have any three of those, again, for six months or more, more often than not to meet criteria for, for a diagnosis. Um, but so often, there are um, transient concerns about low desire that are really normative that we do not want to label as a disorder or a dysfunction, say, yeah. right? Just having had a baby, being in a pandemic, yeah. um, <laughs> having surgery, being on a medication, we shouldn't be labeling those as a disorder. Yeah. We should still be providing support and help where we can. 
Um, so we need to we need to take context into account too. Hey everyone, it's just me. I just wanted to interrupt for a minute to say thank you everyone for your support. I hope you continue to enjoy these episodes. It would be absolutely wonderful if you do enjoy these episodes to head over to the Apple podcast app and rate and subscribe to the podcast. It just allows more people to be able to find this podcast. I also want to say a big thank you to everyone who has also pledged to support the Pelvic Health Podcast. If you are interested, you can look for the Pelvic Health Podcast on the Podbean app, which is just at podbean.com. There's a little link where you can become a patron and you can donate one or two US dollars a month. You could cancel at any time. And as my way of saying thank you, I have been putting out some patron-only podcasts, which I'm covering little topics and a lot of things. And based on the discussion today with Dr. Lori Brado, I'm doing a little series on the vestibule and what happens with pain and around that area and some um, mindfulness and treatment based approaches that we can take to help those women. Again, thank you everyone for listening and I hope you continue to keep enjoying all of these episodes. Sexual desire, is it something that we learn, like you said, through sex education or through TV or movies? Yeah, great question. Uh, So our thinking about this has really changed over the past 50 years um, since the early days of Masters and Johnson, who are really credited as being like the grandfather and grandmother of modern day sex therapy. Um, And so it used to be thought that each of us was was born with a set level of sexual desire. Um, and there was nothing we could do to change it. Um, we had no control over it. And when it peaked, in other words, when it when it it rose above the threshold of us feeling spontaneous desire, it kind of hit us out of the blue. There was nothing we could do. We had to have sex. So this model has been totally refuted. Listeners, as they're hearing this, they're like, oh, what kind of planet does that happen on, except in the early stages of a relationship? Um, so our, our more modern thinking of desire, um, which is really supported by the science, equates desire to just to like an emotion, right? We, we are happy when we see people we care about, when good things happen to us, when someone says something that makes us feel good, we feel happy. So it's in that way, happiness and sadness are responsive to the situation and the context. Um, And desire works exactly the same way. So desire emerges in response to some kind of trigger, positive trigger, effective elicitor in some way. So yes, all of us are born um, on kind of a different bell-shaped curve with how predisposed we are to responding to those elicitors. But what's more important is that those elicitors have to be there Mm -hmm. and they have to work for us. And over the course of our lifespan, we might respond differently to the same elicitor. So for example, um, some women will say, yeah, you know, in my 20s, nipple stimulation turned me on. It got me excited. It got me aroused. And now in my 40s or my 50s, it's annoying or painful. Same stimulation, but our response to it is quite different. So um, when we look at low desire, 
I find it so much more helpful and so much more empowering for women to think about it through the lens of it's not that there's something wrong with you. It's, it's that we're using ineffective triggers for you, ineffective elicitors, and that's what we need to pay attention to. So the environment and the context have a huge role in this. Absolutely. So you have this really, um, again, the hashtag debunking desire. Um, if you look, well, again, I'll put the links out there, but there is a really good handout. There's a really nice video that explains a lot of these things in um, simple terms. And when you read it, uh, it's kind of pointing to stress as an issue. Why is this? Where does stress fit into all of this? How does it affect all of anything to do with desire? Yeah. So, um, well, let's start with, you know, the anecdote that um, I often hear <laughs> uh, from friends, from clients and other and other people. And it is, man, when I feel stressed, I am so not interested in sex. Um, and the flip side of it being, wow, when I'm on vacation and I'm not stressed, all I want to do is have sex. So stress is definitely relevant, very relevant. Um, and there's what we've learned through the science is that there's a few different ways that stress affects sexual desire. So definitely physiologically stress, chronic stress, at least results in chronic release of the stress hormone cortisol. Um, and when done so over a long period of time, um, it can really disrupt with our natural stress response system, which really was developed to help us deal with short term acute stressors. But in the face of chronic stress, um, it backfires and simply doesn't know how to regulate anymore. So when cortisol is awry, it can directly impact um, some of the um, kind of underlying um, neurotransmitters and hormones involved in, with, with sexual desire. So that's definitely one way. On a more psychological level, stress can make it difficult to concentrate and concentration and attention are key or they're absolutely critical to sexual desire. Um, stress can also make it much more likely for people to have negative thoughts. Um, it can make it much more likely for people to catastrophize, which basically means that they're imagining the worst thing happening. So they might enter a sexual encounter and they start thinking, oh my gosh, what if I don't have an orgasm? Is my partner going to leave me? You know, does this reaffirm the fact that I'm not a real woman? Dot, 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 dot. And that, of course, is going to affect one's willingness or motivation for, for sex. Um, and, of course, chronic stress is also associated with anxiety and depression, too. And both of those have been fairly uh, strongly tied to low desire. So stress is a major culprit. Um, and... The studies, the big studies that have compared the relative weight of things like stress versus um, hormones and our physiology, even through the perimenopause, consistently find stress to be one of the, the, the top culprits in low desire. Do you find, though, there's a lot of people, though, who don't realize they're stressed? So don't realize that all of that is playing into their issues with sexual desire? Yeah, completely. And... Um, you know, there's separate research on stress that looks at its um, damaging effects. And it finds that, you know, by stress, I'm, I'm also referring to the day to day grind, like the chronic to do mm. list, the never feel like being on that perpetual hamster wheel. And the research finds that that kind of chronic ongoing stress can actually be worse for our brains and our body than a trauma. 
like a, a natural disaster or some other kind of trauma. And and uh, I think what's especially dangerous, Laurie, is what you've just mentioned, is that stress flies under the radar. We just kind of normalize that this is our way of being, this is our life, and we don't realize that, you know, in the meantime, it's wreaking havoc. Or, and again, some people don't associate that having a lot of things to do on your plate is also actually stress, even if you don't right. feel like, you right. know, you're stressed in that typical physical um, term that a lot of people sense it. But again, thinking in the pandemic, there's so many people that are at home and they're homeschooling and working from home and doing all of these things um, that they may feel like they're on top of everything, but they're doing a right. hundred things every yes. single day. Uh, sexual desire and wanting to be with your partner or yourself may be the last thing on your list. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it, and it feels like yet another thing on the list when you're just done with doing things on your list. Yeah. So, um, you know, there are some gender differences there, um, not consistent gender differences, but certainly women are are more likely to say you know, when I'm, when I'm stressed, it's the last sex is the last thing on my mind. And men are slightly more likely to say that sex can be stress relieving and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a source of energy. So, um, if, if you're a woman in a, in a partnership with a man, then, then you might be responding to stress quite differently. Yeah. Now in, within kind of the terminology of what sexual desire is, you talked about the pathology being related to, um, not, to not wanting it? Are you talking about the criteria in the DSM um, that it's bothersome? So mm-hmm. what if it doesn't bother somebody? Yeah, then you, then they're perfectly fine. They don't so, need to do anything about it? They don't need yeah, to listen I mean, to people saying that you should or is it just that they've been, you know, not uh, participating in something for so long that, you know, they've learned not to care? Yeah, it, you know, it, what I think what makes it tricky is women in relationships because let's say, you know, her desire for sex is, I don't know, once every six months um, and her partner's desire for sex is once a week. So there's a discrepancy there, mm. usually meaning that she will be labeled as having the desire problem. But if okay. she's in a relationship with someone who desires sex once a year, she might actually be labeled as the higher desire person, right? Yeah. Desiring it once every six months. So it's very relative to your partner. So when I talk about distress, um, it, it, one of the things, of course, that we take into account is how much impact does this have definitely on you, but also on your relationship. Hmm. And so very often we see, um, I certainly see women who come in wanting to improve their desire, not because they care about it, but because of the toll it's taking on their relationship. So that's where it gets a little bit tricky um, because, of course, to change something or improve it only to appease a partner is kind of a perfect recipe for resentment over time. And I've seen those patients that come in and you've talked about it in your research and we've talked about it on the podcast before that often the pelvic floor muscles can be tense because they're really good at protecting and guarding a yeah. very important area. And we can educate and bring awareness to that and teach people how to down train and relax those muscles. But the second they leave our door, the muscles just protect and guard again because we haven't really addressed why they are protecting and guarding. So this is where I think all of your um, mindfulness treatment approaches are coming in as well. So what, um, how long have you been studying the mindfulness 
as helping with kind of sexual pain disorders or sexual desire? Um, so I started in 2002. So okay. it's been about 18 years. I w- I'd never heard of mindfulness before. I only knew of meditation through the lens of Buddhism. Um, but I learned about it when I was in Seattle at the University of Washington and learned about mindfulness as a core treatment for a, a totally different um, mental health condition, uh, borderline personality, which was characterized by people who had pretty extreme ups and downs in their emotions, like they would like hour by hour fluctuate between extreme highs of mania and excitement and feeling on top of the world to extreme lows of depression and even hopelessness and suicidality. And so what I learned was that mindfulness, which taught one to stay in the here and now and kind of ride out those emotions without ignoring them, distracting from them, um, was was incredibly effect- an effective way of coping, which at the time seemed really um, counterintuitive to me because I thought, but if you're focusing on your current issues right now, isn't that going to make it worse? Mm. But I but I learned that um, it's our tendency to either jump into the future and imagine that it's never going to go away, like things will never get better, catastrophizing over the outcome. Or our tendency to ruminate on the past, our past Mm. failures, all the things we did wrong, that that's actually where the suffering is. So from that lens, it makes a lot of sense that staying here and now is probably a lot safer than jumping to the future or the past. Um, And so I learned about it with working clinically with those individuals, but was still doing sex research um, at the time with cancer survivors who had sexual issues after their treatment. And I thought, wow, you know, the cancer survivors I'm, I'm working with uh, have some striking similarities in that they're talking about a disconnection. They're talking about mourning a loss. They're worrying about, are they ever going to feel sexual again? So um, basically did some experimenting with them. And thankfully, they were open enough to um, have me fuddle about with, you know, the instructions, because I was, of course, learning it myself for the first time. Um, and it worked. It actually allowed them to feel physical pleasure and sensations that they were convinced were completely gone. So I was sufficiently um, uh, inspired by the findings that I then started actually doing proper research on this and not just, you know, experimenting with a mm. handful of women. And then it just kind of continued from there. Mindfulness, which a lot of people will understand and know from Headspace, and we've got another app here in Australia called Smiling Mind, um, they, I feel, have brought to light some really good guided ways to do some breathing techniques and how to be aware of certain sensations in your body and your physical senses. But is that what you're doing with people to help them with sexual desire, or are you bringing things to do with, like you said, pleasure and body parts. And it's not just let's do some breathing exercises, think of your belly. And then now you should feel like you want to have sex. Got it. Yeah, no, it's definitely not that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that sounds magical if it worked. Um, And and we've studied this now 
fairly extensively over the past 18 years with lots of different groups of women and well-controlled studies and we follow women for a year out. So basically, um, it becomes really important that they establish a solid foundation in mindfulness first, non-sexual mindfulness. So the body scan, mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of thought, mindful um, mindful stretch, um, learning how to interact with painful sensations in a mindful way. And we do that for about four weeks before we start even to uh, generalize those skills over to sexuality. Of course, because the sexual context is so much more emotionally laden for them. So once they have a fairly solid foundation of mindfulness practice and they've figured out how to notice when the mind goes elsewhere and not not berate themselves when the mind does go elsewhere, but rather gently guide it back compassionately, we then start to introduce some self-touching exercises where they're not touching for the purposes of getting aroused or orgasm, but they are touching themselves in a way that maybe would happen in a sexual context, but because they're doing it themselves, they have complete control over it. And then we um, ask them to pay attention mindfully in the same way that they were doing a general body scan, um, again, non-pleasure oriented. And then from there, we gradually uh, progress to um, increasingly more sexual exercises and then more partner-related exercises. So one of the exercises, um, actually the women absolutely love, they just love it, um, is we ask them to use some kind of a sexual aid. So either uh, erotica, so reading erotica or visual erotica or a vibrator or fantasy just for a few minutes to basically excite the arousal pathways in their body and then they stop using that aid that sexual aid and then they engage in a body scan mindfulness practice and because the body has been just dialed up just a little bit through the sexual arousing activity they're able to tune in so much more to mm. heart rate and sensitivity in their skin um, and uh, like I said they really love that exercise because for a lot of them I think for a lot of people in general um, we have no idea what's happening in our body right <laughs> there's like just our awareness of our internal sensations or interoception in other words is is pretty low so it's a way to really sharpen that skill of knowing what's happening in the body especially in the genitals like yes how often do women think about the sensations that they have unless they have pain like Precisely. it's not until they have pain and they can't have intercourse or it hurts to wipe then they start yeah. to focus on that they actually have that body part um, and yeah. the sensations but then it's not great sensations to focus on so yeah. if somebody has pain can so mindfulness obviously will still work but you've got to switch like do you kind of follow that same path where you're taking totally away from that part you know getting them to practice the mindfulness with some discomfort like in a stretch yeah. and then slowly bringing them back to focusing on discomfort that they have or That's do you tweak exactly it? what we do that is precisely nice. what we do so we do again uh, you know at least four weeks of general mindfulness practice um, and then we have them do mindfulness while they're in pain so in a group format we do it not with their genital or vulvar pain but with some other pain so maybe they have a back pain or a neck pain or an old injury, or we can very easily elicit a pain. You just put your hand up in the air for five minutes, and after five minutes, it's one of the most excruciating pains you will ever feel. <laughs> so we do this in group together. We have them hold their hand up. 
uh, for a 15 minute meditation and we guide them through, we never use the word pain at all. Uh, we're rather focusing on bare sensations, right? So vibrations and temperatures and textures and locations. Um, and basically what, when they tune in, they realize, wow, I can, I can actually stay with those uncomfortable sensations without getting wrapped up in the storyline of why me, why this pain, will this ever go away? Um, and then we ask them to go home and try it with their vulvar pain. So they'll elicit their own vulvar pain with a finger or with a vaginal insert, just using it a very tiny bit and do essentially the exact same exercise, never use the word pain um, and just invite them to focus on bare sensations. So we did a, a, a nice pilot study of this uh, about six years ago, had some promising findings and then launched a full scale, much larger um, clinical trial where we followed women for a year and the reduction in pain was 50 to 60% with all the gains maintained a year later. It was pretty remarkable. If I, if I didn't see the data analyzed before my very eyes, I probably wouldn't have believed it. Um, and then we continue to follow those women now a few, a few years later. And because um, they felt like it had impacted them so much, of course, they're motivated to keep practicing. Yeah. And again, that's not by them getting a massage or having something done to them physically, which I think physios, I think sometimes focus on way too much. And I find, especially with pain, everything you're talking about is, I think most people, the biggest part and people skip over it or they don't know how to learn it and apply it. So from a clinical point of view, if people want to look into you know, learning more about how they can apply this to their patients, what resources do you have? Is it just reading the research study, although a lot of people don't have access because they're hidden in the universities? Or is this in your book, which I haven't mentioned yet, but... Yeah, yeah. So definitely, I mean, the only reason I wrote the book is um, because I realized, as you've just said, people don't read journal articles. So, you know, I've got like 180 journal articles and no one reads them. Uh, I do. I should just stop... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I should just stop writing journal No, articles. no, please don't. Um, but uh, so so the book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, is really just a translation of the research studies, but written in a fairly accessible way. So I often, um, because I'm in obstetrics and gynecology, I, I often um, do workshops for gynecologists on how to integrate this into their gynecologic practice. Um, and thankfully, where I am in, in BC, British Columbia, Canada, um, they've they've have been so on board with um, not only recommending this to their patients, but actually learning it themselves because they've been so convinced by the data. So I'll often say to healthcare providers, read the same things that you're recommending your patients are reading, like you know the basic books like Mindfulness for Beginners or Full Catastrophe Living. Um, or the miracle of mindfulness, like the same books that they're reading, read your, read them yourself, and really importantly, try and adopt your own personal practice. Um, it, mindfulness is one of those things. It's so hard to teach, kind of academically, without really having a firsthand experience of of what it is. Um, so that would be my recommendation for really any healthcare provider. Yeah, which um, is hard for some people because they just want you to tell them, like you said, four to six weeks, do this. For the next four weeks, do this and then this. And it's kind of like, again, if you truly understand 
what you're trying to accomplish and how it feels, I think then it comes a little bit more naturally. And, you know, you can use your clinical reasoning and your mind and your brain in order to do that. (laughs) All those wonderful things, right? (laughs) All of those wonderful things. So what are you hoping with the hashtag debunking desire with this campaign? Yeah, so it's a social media ca- campaign um, that is really about knowledge translation. And um, again, coming back to the fact that no one reads my journal articles, except you, Lori, thank you. Um, it, so Debunking Desire is really a campaign targeted to women in the general public. Um, and it is designed to debunk and demystify a lot of the prevailing Uh, myths and stereotypes around low sexual desire. So we have a website, debunkingdesire.com. We have a social media campaign where we use the hashtag debunkingdesire. um, And we've created an infographic video together with a group of women patients. So they they wrote out the story. They drafted um, the details. They oversaw the graphics. And basically the video... Um, outlines some of the major contributors to low desire and folds in a ton of science in 90 seconds. Uh, and the viewer would never know that it was, you know, based on about 50 different research studies because it's, again, it's done so in such a um, somewhat casual but very accessible way. So it's an eight month campaign where we're trying to use the hashtag and use our toolkit and use our video to share as much accurate information about women's desire as we possibly can. How come only eight months? Is it just because you have to, you're actively engaging and doing it that you can't continue to do that and do everything else you need to do? Um, it's, it's actually because uh, the grant that funded us is a 12-month grant, yeah. and it took a couple of months to get things up, and then, of course, we want a couple of months to analyze. So, because so you're using a, this to analyze? Oh, yes, we are. Okay. So it's, it's an actual knowledge translation research study. Oh, cool. So once the campaign date closes, we actually pretty extensively analyze how effective were we by Twitter, by Instagram, by Facebook Lives, by podcasts, by video, by YouTube? Um, what are the most effective ways that women are getting the information? Because, of course, that's going to steer education campaigns in the future. If we if we learn that the group we're targeting, you know, no one's on Facebook anymore um, and they're unlikely to be on Twitter. It's really Instagram where it's at. Then, of course, Instagram becomes the best option for sharing future evidence-based information. So we're going to continue to um, share the information, but we're we're cutting off our metrics period. Uh, okay. Months. But yeah. every all the information, the videos, everything will oh, still it, be out it, there. It'll okay. Live out there when I heard eight months, I'm like, oh, then you're going to take it down, and, and we won't no. have anything. No, no, no. Oh, good. <laughs> all right, that's it, everyone. Thank you. Have a great day.